Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Vitaly Katzenelson, the author of Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Vitaly's book draws from the lives of classical composers, ancient Stoics, and contemporary thinkers. I found his book to be a beautiful collection of life lessons, and wisdom for modern life. You can learn more about Vitali and the book at soulinthegame.net. In the conversation, we discuss living in challenging environments, the importance of having an operating system for life, stoicism and investing, the difference between art and craft, wisdom for daily life, and so much more. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Josh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you. I am happy to have you. And today we're going to be talking about your book, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. I've really enjoyed reading it and uh, looking forward to getting into the conversation. So before we get into the book, I wanted to spend some time and talk about your parent. You wrote something in, in the beginning of the book that, that really struck me as a parent myself to young kids. And you write that my parents never complained. Could you talk about growing up in Russia and maybe if there's any thoughts of the perils of complaining in difficult environments, just anything that comes to mind around that? That is a great question. Okay. Okay. So it's very important to understand that when I was growing up in Russia, and I have to provide some context for this. Please. So I'm growing up in not just in Russia, but in Soviet Russia. I'm living in the city called Murmansk, which is up northwest above the Arctic Circle, where there is very little daylight during the winter, very cold. And my parents never complained about that. My parents rarely complained that when we went to the store, there was very little food. I grew up in this environment. I thought that was normal because there was no contrast. And that's very important to understand. A lot of times, the contrast could be a negative thing, actually, because especially if you used to have a better life and now it's worse, actually, it's a lot more painful if you never experienced a better life. But my father always had this attitude that there is no such a thing as a bad weather. Like when you go outside it's, you know, and it's windy, it's cold, you can always find good things in this. And you should accept it as it is. And the irony of this, my father knew, did not even know how to spell Epictetus, I'm sure, but or Seneca. But now that I look back at his behavior, it was very stoic behavior, right? Because he was, what he was basically doing, he was doing a lot of reframing. And also my father felt, and this is going to sound a little bit kind of just not politically correct, but, well, he had three sons, and he felt that he had to raise men, his words, meaning he had to prepare us for life. And the life we're going to face is not always going to be kind to us. And he wanted us to be able to face this life and, and be able to survive. So this is why he felt that when we face adversity, we should embrace it. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of... My father's and my mother's. I, I speak more of my father than my mother because my mom died when I was 11. So it's a, my recollection of her has kind of been fading away over the years. Yeah. It seems to be such an important lesson. I've been pondering that for the last week or so. Is there a more important lesson? If you could pick one as a parent, how did that example 
maybe shape how you think about the world when you were a bit younger than you are now and navigating life as a young man? So my father was never afraid to put himself into discomfort. Let me give you a few examples. In the wintertime, just imagine, this is like negative 30 degrees Celsius. He would go swimming in the frozen lake. Okay? And he felt that would build his character. And I saw that. I, you know, I, I didn't do that, but I saw that. And I realized that there was absolutely nothing wrong with doing things like that. Or we would ski and my father would just take off his shirt and just ski kind of without a shirt. Again, in the cold weather. I think when we came to United States, I was probably prepared more to face adversity and to work harder, partially because of that. But, you know, and also the, and this is kind of, when you come from a very poor country to a wealthy country, you have an advantage. This is the, where the contrast works in your favor. It becomes your tailwind instead of being your headwind, right? For me, that that contrast, that seeing how this is the land of opportunity. If I work hard, and I mean, and I had to work harder than others because I had to learn the culture. I had to learn the language. I work harder. And so I knew if I work harder, then I'll be able to achieve a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, that was an advantage to, that, I, that I actually, I was born in Russia and kind of grew up in America. And I also appreciated this country a lot more because the things that when we are born into it, we take for granted. I appreciated it because, because of the contrast experience. Well, I greatly appreciate you sharing some background. And it seems like appreciating life and not letting life pass you by is maybe a theme that runs throughout the book. Would you say there's some truth to that? My father always told me, inhale. And let me just provide a context. We would be walking in the beautiful forest and he would stop and just inhale and just kind of try to take mental picture of the moment and just try to appreciate that. When like it's a kind of interesting when my young son used to we used to go to museums when he, my son was little and my son treated museums going through museums the same way he treated going through the airport. He was just looking for exits. Now my son who's 21 when he goes through the museum he actually pays attention to surroundings which he was supposed to do in a museum <laughs> but i think this is how you should be going through life as well not just looking for the exit not just waiting for the next day by actually being mindful and looking around you and inhaling life mm-hmm. and especially like there's a, a lot of times beautiful things are very, very cheap just a beautiful sunset, a light falling on the tree and it's run away. Those things are around us all the time and we just need to notice them and they don't cost very much. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so interesting. I have a, a note for a question that kind of connects to this, but maybe now is as good a time as ever to jump to it. This inhaling life, I'm curious, I've asked many people on this podcast How do you define or think about wisdom and things like this? And I tend to, if there's a theme, I guess that it's maybe something to do with this idea of inhaling life, of taking in information, taking in what is going on in the world. Sometimes a beautiful sunset, but I think of Mother Teresa walking through the streets like many people and seeing a bit of the suffering, taking in that as well, and that leading her to take action and things like that. So I guess my question is, how do you think about taking in information for life and making sense and helping that to discern your decisions? And I guess to give a bit more context, I was thinking about you as this really skilled investor, CEO of this investment firm. I'm sure you're When it comes to making some of those decisions, you're taking in all sorts of information and making sense of that. How does that relate to life? Just taking in information and maybe 
discerning that next decision, that next step? Wow, what a question. Okay, let me see. So I think I have this attitude is that approach life from a student of life perspective. So I'm not afraid of being wrong. I'm not afraid to admit when I don't know the answer. I'm not afraid to admit that some many times the answers in life are complex and they're nuanced. And that and then when you do this, you appear to be less certain. And this is not good for your marketing, by the way, if you want to market. But that is good for you if you want to be an analyst, if you want to do what I do, if you want to analyze companies and build portfolios. But it's also very good if you want to learn. Because one of the worst things that could happen to you, I'm going to go back to investing for a second. As an investor, the worst enemy is your ego. And to be a good investor, I would argue you have to be thoughtfully arrogant. Well, let's break it up a little. Let's thoughtfully arrogant means that you need to have some arrogance. And that arrogance, because every time, especially if you're a value investor, and value investors usually buy stocks and businesses that are hated. So there is a so you are kind of a minority. Your opinion is a minority. You're disagreeing with the majority. So you need to have arrogance to basically to make a decision you're making. There is a certain amount of arrogance. However, it's a thoughtful arrogance. And that arrogance does not come to you because I am and therefore I'm going to be right. No. Or I was right in the past, therefore I'm going to be right again. No. This arrogance comes to you because it's thoughtful because you have done a tremendous amount of work and through your diligent research, that's how you came to the conclusion that happens to disagree with the British opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then while you, when you get into that opinion, when you're doing through going through research, you have to be open to, you have to study what's the other argument? What's the argument that everybody else thinks? Okay. Are they right? And actually if you go through and you study it, and a lot of times I tell you this, we look at 20, 50, sometimes 100 companies and we would buy one. Because a lot of times the market is right. A lot of times we don't have an insight. We don't have enough insight to be thoughtfully arrogant. What's just what the market is right at times. So also the student of life is so important because it's a, I'll give you another example. A lot of times in life, you have to, you're going to make mistakes. A lot of times in life, you, you're going to lose. So to look, you're going to make a decision, it's not going to work out. But also, here's a, one example from my life. I play chess. And I am, even though I've been playing chess all my life, I never really took it seriously. So I started to play a lot more over the last couple of years. And I tell you this, because I approach the game as a student of life, when I lose, I look at it as a tuition. The, the worst thing that could happen to you when you lose, you it hurts your ego and you stop playing. And approaching it from a student of life perspective, it changes. It's again, it's as the Stoics would say, I just reframed. All I did is just reframed it. But it's more than that. Here is why. Because being a student of life became my identity. And it's a constant lens through which I look at life. So I don't even have to reframe it anymore because it's just like, it's just, a, it's, it's a default position for me. I love the idea of, of thoughtful arrogance and this idea of student of life. I think that's really helpful. And I think it's going to connect with a lot of the listeners out there. But I jumped ahead a bit. Maybe if we could go back and define a couple terms and talk about this book, Soul in the Game, you know. What is soul in in the game? What does that mean to you and why does it matter? Great. I've been thinking a lot more about this concept since the book came out. And I think I can explain it from a slightly different perspective than explain it in the book. Okay. Soul in the game is a mental model through which I look, I and people, I would argue, should look at life through. And it's a mental model. It's a mental model that if you follow it, it will add a lot more meaning to your life. Now, so let's define what is soul and what is game. Okay. So game is whatever activity is dear to you. Okay. 
it's meaningful to you or it has an impact on others. So one of those three, or could be a combination of the three. Soul is basically your attitude to that activity. Okay, it's the when you are pouring every ounce of your soul, I guess, or your your essence into it. Okay, so when you have soul, when you are completely tied to that activity, then you have soul in the game. Okay. There is a, it's a somewhat abstract idea, but over time I came up with some criteria. By the way, just to, to make it clear, I borrowed the concept from Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black, Black Swan and The Fragile, many other books. And I, he wrote the book called Skin in the Game. And in this book, there was this kind of, I would argue it was a throwaway chapter that was sold in the game, which when I read the chapter, it had a, so much greater impact on me than the rest of the book. But we can't really talk about soul in the game also without talking about skin in the game. Skin in the game is when you share not just the upside with your customer, but also the downside. I'll give you a few examples. A long time ago, when engineers would build bridges, they would stand under the bridge when the first carriage went through that. So if the bridge collapses, it's not just the person in the carriage who dies, but engineer as well. So suddenly they were tied not just to the fee they received, which is the upside, but also to the downside of the bridge collapses. In my profession, I manage an investment firm. And in my profession, it's very like Wall Street will create any product you want them to create for you, even if, it's kill, if it kills you. And they would create a product that they would never buy themselves. So in my case, I run an investment firm. I... All my liquid net worth is invested in the same stocks that my clients own. So if those stocks do well, I do well. If those stocks decline, I personally suffer as well. So my clients never have to question my integrity or my conflicts of interest. Now, and also the last example, if you're a cook, okay, and you refuse to, to eat your own cooking, maybe there's a problem there. Okay, but that is that's what it means to have soul and to have skin in the game, which is integral to have heaven's uh, soul in the game. And then there are a few other criteria or factors. Or so one of them would be some, uh, money is a secondary consideration. You don't you rarely people who have soul in the game they do it for the love for the love of money because it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to really do this. If you're really driven by money, it's a, it, you, the activity really has to consume you. Okay. So money is just something that as a, a secondary, you also have sacred taboos. You would not do anything that would violate your principles. I, I would, so which kind of follows the, you know, what I just talked about money. So you would never do anything for money. You would not, you would not create a product that you think is bad. There are, just for financial gain. And a few others, but but that's kind of gives you a kind of idea what is soul in a game. Let me ask a follow-up question to that, because I was thinking maybe I'm channeling like Montaigne or something, how he talks about we so easily fool ourselves. I could see someone thinking that, that they have soul in the game, but then they might reach out to you and you could say, well, not quite. How do we know if we have soul in the game? How would you know when you have soul in a game? When you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. That's would be, that could be one criteria. Where that's the only thing that could be, that where you, like you, like that's you know, like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett talks about how he top dances to work. And he never really worked a day in his life because he loves what he's doing. So there's you don't question the world Buffett has sold in a game. I think that's probably the most important criteria. So if you absolutely love what you're doing, you can't imagine doing anything else. Also, another factor, which I haven't mentioned much, but I think it's very important. It, what you do has to be net positive uh, to, uh, for society. I have a friend who in the financial industry, and he sells a financial product, and he's incredibly wealthy. And he loves what he does partially. He loves the sales part of what he does. He hates the product he sells. Okay. And it's very difficult to have soul in a game 
where you have no skin in the game in this case, right? <laughs> he would never buy the product he sells. He, when, he, when he sells this product, he tries to steer his clients to the best, worst product. <laughs> okay, but it's a, but it's a, but he has no soul in the game. So because, just because it's a, what he does, he knows is not net positive for his clients in the long run. So mm-hmm. that's how I would define you know, That's how I would identify it just by how passionate you are about this. Yeah. Let me ask about this formula that you have in the book. Art plus soul in the game equals a meaningful life. Could you say more about this formula and what that looks like in daily life? Yeah, let me, I'm, I'm going to expand it a little bit. The beauty of being a student of life this book is already outdated. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so for me to have a meaningful life, it needs to have several ingredients and it needs to have all of them. And maybe and it's going to be different for different people. But first, I need to have a certain amount of art, creativity in life because that's what really charges my battery. So when I say about art, like, and this is, I need for me, it would be investing, writing. I need to have that because that is like, that's what really kind of drives me to wake up in the morning. I, I wake up every morning at five o'clock and I write. And I look, and I, when I go to sleep, I look forward to this two hours of creativity. But then I can't wait to come to work so I can do investing. So, so having this like sermon of art in my life is very important. The caveat is that I'm. This is what is important to me. Some people want to have less art than others, but you need to have the, this kind of a right balance. How much art you have in your life? How much craft? And it's going to be different for different people. That's number one. Number two, I need to have great relationships, and this is very very important for me. And this is something I realized. This is the kind of the new new ingredient I want to add to this formula. Because I'll give you one example. When I read Snowball, which is an authorized biography of Warren Buffett, I was so lucky that I read it when my kids were young. Because this is a book that has 600, 700 pages. It talks about how Warren Buffett invests. And I'm an investor, right? So all these things, all the secrets of his investment success. And the irony, the most important thing I got out of this book is not to be like Warren Buffett as a parent. I realized that Warren Buffett has a regret that I never want to have, that he never spent enough time with his kids. So for me, have a great relationship with my kids is paramount. Mm. Have good friends and the rest of my family, my wife, my other family members, it's very important. And I think for me, having a meaningful life without it is impossible. And finally, I want to be net positive to society. And I think this is what I do on the micro level when I invest, because I really want to help my clients. And I think, and I think that's what we strive to do and kind of on the larger level when I write. So those three elements together and, but you know, and, a, and a, the, you would argue having soul in a game falls into the, into the creativity part, right? It's very difficult for me to be creative in something where I don't have soul in the game. So those three factors are ingredients are very important for me to have a meaningful life. It's really interesting. And as you mentioned, the Buffett autobiography and things like that and balance and all of that type of stuff. I was thinking about this quote from Aristotle as I was reading your book, and I've thought about it before. Aristotle said, there's no great genius without a mixture of madness. And you're writing about creativity, art, some of these composers. I think of some examples of like Van Gogh or Nietzsche, and there's many others that really got into the to the madness side of it. How does that connect with this formula? If you could think of maybe some of these examples from the past, like Van Gogh or Nietzsche, who maybe got into the more of the madness, if you could speculate, Maybe like where are they out of balance in this formula of art, soul in the game equals a meaningful life? If you look about a lot of geniuses, they basically had, like, I don't want my kids to be geniuses because what it does do, it creates a huge disbalance. 
in their life. Like, because like I'm thinking about Bobby Fischer for a second, right? Who mm. was this incredible genius when it came to chess, but he paid a, such a dear price because I, if I remember right, I think he's completely abandoned his mother and this kind of thing. And I remember his only goal in life was to become a world champion. And that's the worst thing ever happened to him that he did become a world champion. And then he had this complete emptiness in his life. He had no friends, completely abandoned his relatives. And he basically lost his mind. And, I, and he basically lost his mind. And I, even Albert Einstein, somebody who we admire, who we look at me on, who is a role model for a lot of people, he gave up his first child for an adoption because he was too busy working, I think, on a theory of relativity. So I really don't want my kids to be geniuses because there is a cost to it. And what I wanted, so I, so I do want to have a certain amount of balance in my life. So having relations, this is why, I guess this is to your point, right? When you, and this is the danger of, when you are just focusing on your art and craft and completely pushing out your relationships, right? And you, this is why uh, you're going to have a, such a miserable life. This is why you need to have relationships, right? Mm. And uh, so I, and I'll be honest, and I'm no genius, but I'll tell you, it's just so easy to, when you are completely, Maybe there is not like I'm going to use a different analogy. If you absolutely love what you're doing, what you're doing is an addiction. You want to like you want to do this all the time, and that creates a tunnel vision. And because what you do it at the expense of your loved ones, hmm. and I like for me, I have to be very mindful of that. Hmm. So I have to make sure that I do like I'll give you a couple examples. I drive my kids to school almost every day. And I look at this, not as a chore, but as this incredible joy and privilege. And by the way, that took me, that was, I had to do some reframing to do this because mm. I realized my, my 16-year-old daughter, she's in 11th grade, I only, she only has a, two years left in school. So I only have 400 more times I'm going to be able to drive her to school. After that, she'll go to college. I'll see her a lot less. So that is something that I almost had to forcefully program into my operating system. It wasn't like because it's going to help me to overcome my addiction. I've just been spending all my time either investing or writing. I love it. And I have to say, as I was driving my kids to school, I was thinking about you. And I had a special appreciation for the for that 20 minutes that I had with them. I'm glad. Let me ask, just to stay with this for a little bit longer, like I'm curious, every morning you're writing, you have a passion for that, you have a passion for what you're doing. Like many people that are probably listening, there's this passion. And then some people could get the thought of, oh, it would be easier. I need to pay someone to bring my kids to school, or I need to come up with some sort of other option to get them there so I can do this particular thing that I'm in, in love with and really enjoying. Like, how do you remember to, to have soul in the game, but also, I guess, remember that includes being grounded and remembering what really matters? I think it's actually kind of interesting. I think it's a regret, future regret minimization. Yeah. Meaning is that like when I talked about Buffett, I just I realized that it's my my present actions will, if you go unchecked, will cause an incredible amount of regret. And mm -hmm. I never wanted to have this regret. So I think that's a, if I was on the couch with a psychologist, that was like, a, <laughs> <laughs> that's what probably, that, that would be the answer. Just future regret minimization, because I don't want to have that regret. Because for me, like the, the most meaningful moments in my life come from spending time, like think about it, it's like meaningful life, right? Life is just a collection of memories to some degree, right? So the most meaningful moments came from me spending time 
with my friends, my, my kids, my wife, etc., different places, doing different things. And so if I just spend all my time writing and, and investing, then I'm kind of robbing myself you know, of those future of kind of, of those memories and those meaningful experiences. I love it. It reminds me, I, I don't know who said it, but something that has stuck with me of picking your regrets wisely. You're going to have regrets. Like maybe there'll be regrets of, I wish I would have painted more or written more books, but it's like you choose the regrets that you can live with. Like that's probably easier to live with than the regret of I missed out on all these significant moments with my kids. I listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson interview with Tim Ferriss a while back. And there is one thing I remember from this. When Tim asked him, were you a good student? He's like, yeah, I think I had B pluses or A minuses or something. Or maybe plus. Yeah. He's like, like, why? He said, well, to get an A, that meant I would have to commit more time to studying. And that meant I could not do other things I wanted to do, like photography. And so there is a certain amount of compromise, right? Should you be like, should you work harder to get an A while giving up your hobbies? Or maybe even he wanted to, maybe he wanted to spend more time on astronomy. So in other words, he would get a B or A minus in literature, but would get a plus in astronomy. Josh, one of the most important things, realizations I have is that we don't, what we don't do enough, we don't spend enough time in a mindful stage, in the mindful state, sorry, mindful state. Let me explain what I mean by this. What you and I just, you know, what I just said about Neil deGrasse Tyson making a choice to get a lower grade in a, whatever, the literature, because he spent time on something else, that was a mindful decision. And a lot of times we just, we go through life and, don't, and, we, and we don't think about this. We just do things. But actually thinking about this, being mindful about these decisions, it's very important. It's like, for me, again, I keep going to this example, but me making a mindful decision to spend more time with my kids, that was a mindful decision that was triggered by reading a book about Warren Buffett. So I keep appreciating mindfulness more and more. And I think meditation is a huge, like is an important source of mindfulness. Hmm. It's so interesting. Reminds me of someone you mentioned in the book, William Irvine, the author of A Guide to a Good Life, as you mentioned, just great book. And he came on the podcast a while ago of uh, identifying not just a sage per se, someone that you look up to, but in an anti-sage. And like you say, it's not that every single thing is maybe an anti-sage, but as you're talking about that example of someone either past, present, that you want to learn from, to do, or not to do. Oh, so you're absolutely right. So in case Warren Buffett, I really, I spent all this time talking negatively about him, which is silly, but this is like, because this to me was very important, but I have learned so much from him. And I think realizing that people are complex. You yeah. know, and they have great, uh, they have the great things we can learn from them and things, what to do and what not to do. Let me give you an interesting, an interesting example. I have these two friends. One lives in Seattle. I call him the Jesus of Seattle. Another mm-hmm. one lives in Denver, Darren. I call him Moses of Denver. What they have in common, they're the kindest people I ever met in my life. I never heard a single negative word from them. I have this goal is that I want to become a, per, a kind person. Okay, this the this Darren and Matt, they are innately kind, meaning for them, that is their default state. And I was observing them for a long time, trying to figure out how they got there. And I think in part, maybe it came from, my parent, from their parents, et cetera, but one thing I observed that they never say anything negative about anybody. And this is important because our subconscious mind is, that's where basically our identity is written. When we say negative about other things, other people, that is written into our identity. When we are always saying nice things about other people and we try to treat treat everybody with kindness, everybody, that becomes our default behavior. So, I 
try very hard to treat everybody with kindness. And I'll give you an example. It's eight o'clock at night. I'm having a family dinner and I get a phone call from a telemarketer. I will talk to this person with the same kindness I talk to my father. I will basically tell them that it's going to be a short conversation, but I will treat with this person with kindness because if I do this enough, if I treat everybody with kindness, then I won't have to think about it anymore. I'll just be mm. kind to everybody. So, and so I model my behavior based on those two friends I have. So yes, we do need to pick, like another way you can look at just look at your friends or look at the, or look at the uh, Stoics and identify good and bad qualities and try to learn from their bad qualities and try to embody their good qualities and be mindful about it. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I want to transition into to maybe the Stoics here, if we could. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting when it comes to Stoicism, many people that might be familiar with a particular practice or a quote, maybe they pull a piece of it. You didn't do that here with this book. It's definitely not the whole book. You, you cover so many topics, and we're just barely going to scratch the surface here in the conversation. But you talk about it as an operating system. Why do you think that's important to think about it as an operating system instead of maybe just pulling one particular exercise and integrating that in your life? Any thoughts? I think my parents would have loved to have read Stoic philosophy because they, so they, when we're born, think about it as a parent, when you, or as an individual, when you're born, you're basically this blank, you have hardware and software. And the software, the separating system is mostly blank. And then your behavior is shaped by so many factors that you have little control over. Like by what, what your parents teach you, probably the most important one, but by your friends, your circumstances, the books you, books you read. And it's also like, it's sometimes it's like a Winchester mansion, kind of it's a whole bunch of rooms that kind of barely connect each other, this kind of thing. Um, now, Stoic philosophy, it, to me, it's very holistic operating system for life that helps you to go through life and minimize your negative emotions and uh, reduce your suffering. And also, and by this, it also helps you to have a meaningful life, but also a good life. Like the William Irvin's book, The Art to Good Life. That's exactly right. That's what Stoic philosophy is. It's a guide. It's, it is a guide. It's, it is a guide to good life. I'm curious from an investing analogy. Like when you think about, I'm sure you have a an operating system to evaluate and make decisions and things like that. When it comes to Stoic philosophy or another philosophy of life, mm -hmm. how important do you think it is? Like if you were talking to your kids, for example, of really diving in with both feet to understand the operating mm -hmm. system, in your words, as a whole versus Maybe yes. piece by piece. Got it. It's a good question. I found that it's very important for me to approach it holistically because if I understand how all these parts interact with each other, then it's going to be easier for me to practice it. At the same time, like I, I'll be honest, some things I learn, I intentionally have zero, very little interest to go very deep. If you I talk about diet and you start talking about throw some terms at me and uh, how like it's, I have zero interest in it. I'm just basically <laughs> yeah. going to ask, tell me what I have to do and how. Like I have no interest in that. But I think this, first of all, I think it's a, it was just studying that was fascinating to me. I think that's, I think what's really made a difference is that reading Stoics was so interesting. And so this, the writing is so brilliant because you read this and I, I remember the, God, I think it was Seneca who was talking about how we are constantly distracted by things, etc. And I was thinking like how we have all these things come to our life and they distract us and we never focus, etc. And he was not, this is written 2000 years ago. This is before iPhones, Netflix, and Instagram. Right. Yeah. This is uh, this is where the movies that showed up on Netflix were still <laughs> playing out in real life. So reading, so I think reading Stoic philosophy was just very interesting to me. 
like reading a medical text or a book. I have somebody send me a book about diet, and I promise you I'm not going to read it just because <laughs> I just needed one page of cliff notes of what to do. But Stoic philosophy was different just because I think it just made it so much more interesting. Uh, it was so much so interesting. Also, here I felt there were so many mental models that can, I can port into, into different parts of my life. Let me give you an example. You talked about investing. So let me just give you one mental model, like the economy of control, okay? Which is, to me, what's really attracted me to stoic philosophy to begin with. That's what kind of, that. so very, very simply, there are some things are up to us, most things aren't, okay? And things that are up to us are very limited. They're just basically, it's our values, our behavior, these kind of things. And everything else is not up to us. Now, let's apply this to investing. What is up to me is my analysis, my research process when I analyze stocks. What is not up to me is the outcome. I can, what I have to focus on is on my process to focus on making the best decisions I can. But if I, the success of every decision is completely not up to me because there is so much randomness exists in the world, right? So, so therefore trying to improve and try not to be stressed that a company I bought declined 30%. First of all, if you invest in stocks, volatility that declined 30%, that's a feature, that's a constant feature of doing this. So I can't really control it. And so therefore, all I have to do is just keep coming back to my research, my analysis, and double check that I'm doing a good job and try to always to improve. So this is why, so going back to your question, this is why Stoic philosophy was so useful because I could go and I could pick the modules from it, these mental models, and apply it to different parts of my life. Does this idea of letting go of the outcome, if you will, connect back to that soul in the game that we were initially talking about? You were talking a bit about the finances. You're not necessarily doing it for some sort of financial game, but is it? The letting go of the outcome, is that a sign that you maybe have soul in the game? Well, okay, so I'll give you a few answers. Number one, connection to the outcome and investing. I really, it's in the short term, I completely cannot control what's going to happen. In the long term, if I keep doing a good job in my analysis, I should have a good outcome on average. On, across the portfolio, but it's not going to be it's not going to be with every stock. Number one, number two, just think about it. If I time, so the some people would interpret it as I don't care. No, you, I can care all I want. What difference is it going to make? I can be, I've been, I, I be, I can be stressed out if the sun is going to come out tomorrow, and it's not going to make a difference if they come out or not. So the only, so it's not, it's outside of my control. The outcome. So, so that actually reduces my stress and also that makes me a better investor by reducing my stress because by me being less emotional, I'll be more logical. There is a, it's a kind of a zero-sum game. Emotions and logic, they're kind of the more emotional you are, the less logic you are, number one. Number two, soul in a game could be dangerous, Okay. And, and this is something that I alluded to in the book, and I, in a follow-up write-up, I would have to discuss it in greater detail. The, if you have, I remember how we talked about if you have, if you only have, if you have the soul in the game, you're, if you're addicted, obsessed, then you start pushing out other parts of your life. Also, this is very important. You have to be very careful how you, how you define yourself, how you, how you label your identity. Okay. In the book, I talk about an investor who, who I knew actually, who was extremely wealthy, was worth $400 million and who had good returns over the last you know, 10, 15 years, but they were good returns. I don't know, maybe 7% a year, 10% a year or 9% a year. And the market did 12 or something. And he looked at himself as a failure and committed suicide mm. because his identity was completely tied to him being an investor who does better than the market. So soul in the game, like I would argue you would need to put some guardrails to make sure that it doesn't spill over in other parts of your life and you actually become having a miserable life. Mm -hmm. So this is why 
I would argue this is why the relationships become like it's an important part of the equation as well. So I want to work with people that that like if when you hire a contractor, you want to like to remodel your house. You want to hire somebody who has a soul in the game, who really cares about that the bathroom they model for you is going to be incredible. And it's they won't be just concerned about money. They'll just be concerned that what they create for you, you'll be enjoying for a long time. But as this person, you would you also want to be careful that this does not completely engulf your life. So you need to have some guardrails. It seems to be such an important point. I really appreciate you bringing it up. It reminds me, I think of Van Gogh, if I read correctly, somewhere that I think in the last two years of his life, he painted over 800 oil paintings, mm -hmm. just really obsessed and obviously didn't end well. As we start to wrap up, our time has really flown by. I want to touch on the wisdom of writing. You know, you really have write and speak highly about the practice of writing and shaping our thinking and life. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So we come equipped with this incredible mind. And this mind and this is a mental model. This is I'm not a, I'm not a neurosurgeon or whatever, but it's a our mind as I as I can but I have a mind of my own so I can kind of I can analyze myself. We have a conscious mind and subconscious mind. And a conscious mind is a computer like an iPhone. It has a lot of sensors. It has some power, but it's a limited amount of power. And it has a very limited storage. Our subconscious mind is this enormous computer with huge processing power and huge storage. So when we go through life and we do kind of we go through life, we spend most of our time in a, and again, I'm, it's gross generalization in the conscious mind. Okay. However, when we sit down to write or we do something creative, we create this magical link between conscious mind and subconscious mind. We finally get to, for two hours a day, I get to engage the supercomputer I have. And the way it gets engaged is by me staring at a blank screen, screen for hours. Okay. And trying to fare these words on, on the screen. And Sometimes I get lucky and this magic starts to work and suddenly I start writing things I did not know I knew. This is like, this is, by the way, this may sound weird, but there's, I'm not the only person, I'm not the only writer to have this kind of experience. Most people who write have this experience. A lot of times I look at what I wrote and to me, I learned a lot and my conscious mind and myself are surprised by what I wrote. <laughs> And in fact, if I had any insights today, don't think Vitaly, think his subconscious mind. It, because that's where it came from. So writing is this, creates this for me, this activates this chemistry between conscious, subconscious mind. And they, one of the great writers said that most people spend, think of a few hours a year. And, he, and because he writes, he thinks a few hours a day. That's how I feel. Mm -hmm. I get to think Focus a few hours every single day. And I would argue writing is the most important thing that has happened to me as an individual outside of being a parent because that you know, writing has been responsible for a huge part of my growth as an individual. I love it. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think of these many different ways to write of something, you know, philosophical journaling and things like that. It doesn't necessarily need to be anything that is put out anywhere or sent to anyone. Yes, let me actually, let me address this because this is a point I really want to address. Yeah, please. So I would argue that you don't have to become a writer like me. You don't have to spend two hours there writing. But I would advise people to create a space every day, be it five minutes, 15 minutes, or 30 minutes, where you just sit down and write a journal. And uh, it's very important to create a space and, uh, and do this consistently every single day. So if you are a morning person, you do it or no, first in the morning. If you're an evening person, do this before you go to sleep. But just create this habit by doing this consistently every day. And even on the day when you have nothing to say, you sit down and you write, I have nothing to say today. And then just do that because it's a very important 
to establish this link day after day. And then it's going to become a habit. And then it's going to become your identity. And, uh, and I promise you, there are so many thoughts that out there are just waiting to come out. You just need to give them space. That's, and I mm-hmm. call it, and it's a space where, like, I have this writing chair. Like, it's almost like a ritual. I have my laptop sitting there. I have my headphone. And I go, I make coffee in the morning, do push-ups. And I go right. That's I do this every moment, every moment. And this ritual, there is a lot of value in it for me. Again, I write two hours a day. Don't just you don't have to start with five minutes. I love it, and I greatly appreciate the passion that you have for not only the practice of writing, but just being a student of life and the passion that you put into this book. So. Let me just ask briefly, as we start to, to run out of time here, we've made it to this final question, Vitali. How do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? Oh God, there's, I'll give you a couple answers. I think wisdom is keep learning or continue to learn. And uh, wisdom is also not repeating. I think wisdom is basically learning from somebody else's mistakes. Okay. So, or at least to learn from your own mistakes. I think to me, wisdom comes when just when I keep learning every single day and I keep improving. And that's what wisdom is to me. And then at some point, be able to take this knowledge and be able to share it with others. That That's kind of that's how that's what i think of wisdom in general mm. beautiful this has been great where would you point listeners that are interested in learning more about you and maybe signing up for your newsletter picking up the book yeah so i'll give you first of all we have a podcast so because i, I figure people who listen to this podcast probably like to listen so we have a podcast where they can basically read my articles it's the, the articles are read to them by a professional narrator articles about investing, life, stoicism, classical music. So they can find them on investor.fm or they can just look for Intellectual Investor Podcast. And so they can set up for my articles on uh, soulinthegame.net. And, and this is important. After I, I wrote the book, I already wrote four chapters and I keep writing more. So once you buy the book, go to Soul in the Game. Well, actually, even before you buy the book, first what you do, you go and sign up for my articles. Then you buy the book, come back to the website again, and there you get instructions how you could get my new chapters that you know absolutely free. So yeah, how's that? Well, love it. I'll link everything in the show notes. And I have to say, I'm a subscriber to the newsletter. Each one that comes out, you you include this a beautiful painting from your father, which is awesome, which you include some of those in the book as well. I really enjoyed that. So Vitaly Katzenelson, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Josh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.